Showtime Sports presents Showtime Boxing with Eric Raskin and Kieran Mulvaney. Hello and welcome to another edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney with my co-host Eric Raskin. I am Kieran Mulvaney. We have a big pay-per-view together, but Eric, I know you have to wait until Sunday morning to watch it because we're at a high school reunion, which, given that we're both incredibly and I'm not at all in denial about my age, I can only assume, uh, ten? Maybe ten. Um, yeah, it, it was my ten, plus my fifteen, plus five more. Uh, but, uh, what, what are you gonna do? You know, I, I am not Bernard Hopkins. I cannot defeat Father Time. Uh, although, you know, if retaining hair counts as a temporary yeah. win over Father Time, I will say, among the guys at the reunion, I was probably top... 10 to 15 percent on scalp coverage uh my hairline you know it's not a bit of retreating but but far far less than most i may have been the grayest guy there however i was certainly uh in, in that conversation but anyway uh it, it was fun saw a lot of people i haven't seen in five years in many cases and and even a handful i haven't seen in 30 years uh including uh one old friend i was really close with in elementary school and middle school but then we kind of drifted apart by high school but when we were younger, you know, we used to have sleepovers a lot. And he reminded me last night I had forgotten about our brief run recording Weird Al style parody songs when we were like <laughs> 10 or so. I uh, certainly pray that all the audio tape evidence of that has been destroyed. But uh, but anyway, I had a good time. But uh, high school reunions definitely do make you feel old. But uh, you don't have to worry about that, do you? One of, one of the perks of dropping out of high school. Precisely. Yes, exactly. I, I don't know what what class reunion I'd go to anyway if I dropped out in, in, in the middle. But um, yeah, did you enjoy, is it always good when you're there at these things kind of comparing career paths and you could be like, well, you may be a successful brain surgeon, but I'm getting laid off in five <laughs> weeks. Uh, yeah, you know, it didn't come up, didn't, didn't specifically make that note, also didn't speak to any brain surgeons. But uh, no, honestly, that's like my least favorite part of the reunion is the mm. sort of the people that you don't know as well or didn't know as well. And you're just sort of doing the standard. What are you doing for work these days? Where do you live? I mean, and those are the conversations you kind of have to have with the people who aren't your friends that you're still in touch with regularly. But that part I can kind of do without. But uh, you, you just hope those conversations are are brief and then you're able to quickly uh you know extract yourself from the conversation and go back in the corner and talk to your three actual friends ah yes there you go of course i'm also fortunate that my high school is like four thousand miles away and <laughs> right so the likelihood of, of my you know even being in a position to go there plus the stone tablets that they carve out the invitations to the reunions on for my school like take a long time <laughs> to make it over here i may i i may invite you to my 35th high school reunion okay. just to have you walk in and see you know how many people are like i don't remember that guy do you know who that is oh yeah i know him and just see see how many people you can fool into thinking you were part of their high school class it would be great i could go running up to a couple of people going hey I haven't seen you in when did I last see you? Was it <laughs> was it New York? Was it New York? Just, I think I think if we're gonna make this happen though, you're gonna have to work on your American accent a little that bit. That is true. Yes, that is or or I've been out of the country for a long time. Right, I guess. There's or you that, or you yeah. or you could be the come on, I was the exchange student. You don't remember me? <laughs> Gustav. <laughs> Gustav, yes. I I've often thought you look like a Gustav. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Ah, see, it's great. Just because 
we're about to be unemployed. It doesn't mean we can't be still making plans together for five years down the road. I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> Let's not oh, assume. Which, like, five years down the road, by the way, that would be yes. just about time for us to destroy another boxing network. <laughs> that's true. That's true. That's the I don't. That's why I don't think of us as unemployed. I think of right. us as five years away from the next round of unemployment. Fantastic. I love that. Um, this week on the podcast, we will be continuing the theme of catching up on things that have happened over the last 30 or so years, as mm. we will be talking to our good friend Gordon Hall, the Showtime Sports Vice President and Executive Producer of Showbox. Uh, I will test Eric with the fight game. He'll present me with another top five challenge. We'll look back at Katie Taylor gaining her revenge over Chantel Cameron. But first, we go to Las Vegas, where Showtime's final boxing pay-per-view saw David Benavides batter Demetrius Andrade and stop him after six rounds. Yeah, Andrade started strongly, throwing fast combinations and even pushing Benavidez backward at times in round one and especially round two. But there comes a point in every David Benavidez fight when the switch flips and he begins to walk down his opponent and start beating him up. And that point came after about two minutes of the third round. At the very end of the fourth, Benavidez dropped Andrade with a right hand and rounds five and six were beatdowns. Referee Thomas Taylor told Andrade's corner after the sixth that he wouldn't let him endure another round like that, but his corner took it out of Taylor's hands and pulled their fighter from the contest. Uh, Benavidez is now 28-0 with 24 knockouts, while Andrade suffers his first defeat, falling to 32-1 with 19 KOs. Kieran, there was a lot of mutual respect between the two in the immediate aftermath, but Andrade seemed reluctant to give Benavidez too much credit, saying he wasn't necessarily better or more skilled, but simply bigger and stronger. Is he right? Is Benavidez just a guy who wins through brute strength? Or is there more to it than that? It sure as hell doesn't hurt the fact that he has clearly immense brute strength. Um, mm -hmm. We've seen this now with so many Benavidez opponents. The, the script of a Benavidez fight very rarely seems seems to change. Um, we're talking about professional prize fighters when we talk about his opponents, people who are used to being punched and being punched very hard. Mm -hmm. And yet we see that so often these guys absolutely crumple once Benavidez gets into gear. It's, it's pretty unusual to see a top-quality boxer show the kind of facial and body language that Andrade was showing from round four onward, and that people like Caleb Plant, who's as tough a guy as you'll ever come across, showed in his fight. Mm. It's kind of a look that, that Gennady Golovkin's opponents used to get when he started to hit them. That realization that you might have all the skills in the world, but that's not going to get you out of trouble here. Yeah. You're in a fight, and you're in a fight that you can't win. Um, which is not to say that that's all he is. He's unconventional, and there doesn't appear to be anything obviously fancy about what he does. But, you know, it's actually, no matter how strong you are, it's actually not that easy to cut off the ring as effectively as Benavidez does when he gets going. He appears to just be lumbering around. But like Golovkin, you kind of see the pressure telling on his opponent before he's actually even really gotten the punches going. It's like that his very presence, once he starts to close the distance, is suffocating as his opponents realize they're being cornered and they, and they can't escape. And yeah. that ability to maneuver opponents into just the right position and distance, that's a real strength. And that was a strength that Golovkin had as well. And, and Benavidez's punch selection is very, very good. He commits to the body. He switches up and down. 
And he's pretty economical with his punches. Like, he doesn't waste a lot. Once mm -hmm. he's dialed in, he seems to have a pretty high connect percentage. Do his size and strength help immensely? Yes, absolutely. That's a huge part of who he is. And that's why he's able to fight the way that he does. But it takes skill to deliver those punches properly. And Benavides has plenty of it. Um, and once again, we've seen him just bludgeon opponent after opponent. And he's mm -hmm. clearly looking for an opportunity to get that really big fight that he craves. And once again, he called out Canelo afterwards, as he's been calling him out for years. Does that performance on Saturday, do you think, make it more likely or less likely that we will actually see Canelo against Benavides in 2024? And is there anything else you want to add about the fight? So the very first note I jotted down when Andrade's corner wisely stopped the fight was Canelo Benavides is getting huge. Uh, <laughs> this this fight, the way that this turned out, it just seemed the perfect setup to take that potential fight to, to another level. I mean, Benavidez, I guess I wouldn't say he's a superstar yet, but he has clearly turned the corner to becoming a star his last couple of fights. He has a real following. The crowd reacts to him. If that fight with Canelo happened, he would have the most star power of any Canelo opponent of the last five or six years, not named Gennady Golovkin. Uh, this is the fight right now for Canelo, and Canelo has not shown himself over the years to be the type to duck the big fight, uh, to shy away from either a tough style or a guy getting hot at the right time. Eh, sometimes, uh, certainly the Golovkin case, he uh, sort of was, was waiting for the best time for him maybe to make that fight. But he, he is not someone that I think we have to worry about. Benavidez looked too good, and thus Canelo isn't going to want to fight him. Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure it's going to happen, but uh, clearly it should. There is no further marination required. Much as I'd love to see Benavidez versus Morel, that can wait. The, the time is right for Canelo and Benavidez. It's the perfect Cinco de Mayo fight. I honestly think it would have a shot at one and a half million pay-per-view buys. I think it could get into that neighborhood. Um, you know, there was talk at one time a few months ago of Canelo's second fight in this PBC deal being against Jermall Charlo. I would assume that lost too much marketability because of the way Jermall fought against him. So I, I would assume that's not really in the mix. So the only other name I'm hearing is Jaime Munguia, which would be a mismatch. It would sell just fine. I think they have a shot right now to sell more than just fine, to take on Benavidez and do a true mega event. So I'd say I'm more than 50% confident that Benavidez will indeed be next for Canelo. And I'm not much more than 50% confident in either guy's chances of winning, which is the dream for fans in a major fight to have one like that, that at this moment really feels pretty close to a toss up to me. Um, a few quick additional thoughts on this fight. Uh, first, I don't know about you, but, I got hit with a, a quick moment of sadness hearing Jimmy Lennon say, it's showtime, knowing this is the second to last time that he'll do that, at least on showtime. Um, just sort of hit, hit me in that moment, the, the gravity of it all. Um, I thought Demetrius Andrade came with a good game plan. He was using movement. He was muscling Benavidez around inside. He was throwing body shots. He was doing all the right things to give himself a chance, and yet... He didn't have a chance, no matter what he did. We know that in retrospect. Um, 
I do appreciate that, that he never tried to stink it out. Um, not that that would have gotten him a win either, but, you know, my point is we, we got an entertaining fight here, about as entertaining as any Andrade has ever been in, and that's good. Uh, you know, he, he suffered his first loss, but it, I feel like he didn't leave a bad taste in anyone's mouth with any of the, with the way he fought at all. Uh, and or you could say Benavidez is one of those fighters who can make almost anyone entertaining, I guess. Either way, good fight, competitive for a little while, and I give full maximum credit to Benavidez for, for this win. Uh, oh, and, and one side note. I can't believe Floyd Mayweather stole my eyeglasses with the crosses <laughs> and the diamonds. I, I was looking for those. I thought I'd simply misplaced them, but uh, nope, Floyd stole them. And uh, the only way that you knew it wasn't me at ringside is that I'd never be caught dead in Yankees gear. I must admit, I saw that, and my thought was, all the money in the world. And, man, money can't buy taste, as they say. But, <laughs> hey, he seemed, pretty, he seemed pretty happy with it, so there you go. Yes, whatever. It's uh, I am no I am no expert in style, but it seems to me that it's not so much trying to look good; it's trying to state with one's look. Look how much money I have. Yes, precisely. Yeah, exactly. Um, which is probably why we can't identify not at all, even slightly. No. Um, look at look at the ketchup stain that's still on my T-shirt. That's my kind of style uh, style statement. Oh, look, you mentioned Jamal Charlo, and the co-main event saw him return to the ring after 29 months away and score a comfortable unanimous decision win over David's brother, Jose Benavidez Jr. in a 10-round contest with a contracted weight of 163 pounds, which Charlo missed. Uh, scores were 98-92, 99-91, and 100-90. With the win, Charlo stays undefeated at 33-0 with 22 KOs, while Benavidez drops to 28-3-1 with 19 stoppages. Eric, a good win for Charlo, or should he have scored the knockout against the smaller, less skilled opponent? Uh, well, I'll, I'll just start with the little uh, note that you slipped in there that uh, the contracted weight was 163 and he missed it. It didn't even get within three pounds of that. So so right off the bat, that's worthy of some criticism. Um, don't know if it made a difference in this fight, but he was very clearly the much bigger fighter. Again, not sure that those three pounds had any impact but in general this was a, a bigger man against a smaller man clearly still all in all i'd say a good win for charlo given the length of the layoff given the personal struggles and mental health struggles all of which he still seems to be grappling with based on interviews he did leading up to the fight and his interview in the ring afterward with brian campbell um so to dominate benavidez as he was supposed to to stay focused enough to do that for 10 rounds i think the commendation for that exceeds the criticism for failing to score the knockout. The CompuBox stats were seriously one-sided. Charlo landed 116 of 334 jabs, 35%. That is a lot of jabs, and those numbers felt right. The, the jab was just so on point all night and, and set up everything else. Benavides Jr. is tough as all hell. He showed a great chin. Kind of remarkable in retrospect that Terrence Crawford stopped him in the final round of their fight, seeing the chin that he had on display here. Great chin, very gutsy, but he never had a prayer here. The talent gap was just massive. The size difference did not help Benavidez's cause. I gave Benavidez one round. I gave him the fifth. There were a couple of coin flippy kind of rounds, but the rest were all clear Charlo rounds. But, you know, Charlo, I thought he looked good. He looked sharp. Didn't show much in the way of rust. Uh, his right uppercut was cooking. Good combinations, especially hooking off the jab, which not everyone can do, and putting together that left hook, left uppercut combo, which you also don't see very often. 
the action was engaging throughout. I enjoyed the mid-fight trash talking. I got a huge kick out of the crowd chanting, Jose, Jose, at one point, and Jamal joining in while he was boxing. Me that too. Was, yeah, that was that. great. Um, there was no hug or even fist bump at the bell, but then eventually, as the scores were being read, Benavidez came over to Charlo's corner to make nice, so good to see that at least. So, yeah, anyway, a, a knockout would have been nice, but I'm inclined not to criticize him in this case. First fight back, great chin on his opponent. I'd give Jamal a strong grade overall here, maybe like a, a B plus, all factors taken into account. Yeah, I, I have very much the, the same opinion, even to the point of scoring it exactly the same and giving okay. Benavidez the exact same round as you. Mm. Um, yeah, I, I think I think it was very clear early on Jamal realized that Benavidez wasn't going to be able to hurt him, and I think once he knew that that he sort of settled in for the ride a little bit. Uh, I, I don't know if he was even really trying to knock him out. I think he was trying out punches, seeing what he could do. But like you said, Benavides just showed immense toughness. Uh, yeah. Was a little concerned given that I, uh, I, I picked a decision. I think he picked a stoppage. Right. Um, that uh, at the very end he might get one, but Harvey Doc helped help me out there uh, in the final round when he was when he was keeping them separated uh, uh, in the very end. But. Yeah, no, I, I think the thing that I was most impressed with, that I was really quite uncertain about what we would see, was that his hand speed and his timing were down really well, I thought, for, for Jamal. I was quite impressed with that and, and surprised to see that Benavidez made that easier for him because as the fight went on and he started to struggle, he squared up more and he just right. came forward and, and, and stood there and that certainly made it easier. But yeah, I, I, I would basically be the same as you. I, I, I think on balance, Good performance by Charlo for a comeback after such a long time out. Um, and, and hopefully he can move on to, to other things. I, I just wanted to follow up with something that you mentioned there, you know, about the fact that Jamal clearly seems to still be working through some stuff and, and, yeah. and his interviews. And I've got to tell you, wow, seeing the look in his eyes when he was not answering Brian Campbell's questions, mm -hmm. it kind of freaked me out because we've been left to infer the reasons for his absence and we've all assumed it was you know mental health and and this i think this really confirmed it to me because that was a look that i recognized i've seen that look in his eyes that the look that he had in his eyes i've seen right. it in myself mm -hmm. and i don't know the specifics of what he's been going through but right. seeing those non-answers and the, the hint of emotion as he obviously struggled to keep it together that suggests to me that he was indeed at one point and perhaps still in a very, very dark place. Because there's that period, everybody's different, of course. But there's a period when you're starting to come back into the light where what you've been through, you have this realization that what you've been through was so awful. And it's so terrifying to even contemplate that you don't want to verbalize it because that almost gives it credence and life. Mm. And, and it felt to me that he is just emerging from it and he's not yet in the place where he's completely free of it and he's still sort of almost trying to come to terms with everything that he went through and that was the first time that i was like oh you know what just looking at that is it at his eyes i thought wow jamal's really been through it mm. um and so yeah i really identified with that and it, and it did kind of freak me out a little bit seeing that look and so whatever his issues were and hopefully past tense uh, I'm guessing they were very, very serious, and I certainly hope that whatever happens, that he he's able to get himself clear in in the head with whatever happens with his career going forward. Yeah, absolutely. He he was on um, Brian Custer's podcast that aired 
a week or so ago. Um, he did not delve into any specifics on what he went through, but I, I think it's worth listening to for everyone who missed it that um, just he, he was talking openly about having those struggles and, and trying to work through them. And it was I thought it was a really interesting interview. And, it, you know, we interviewed him uh, in Vegas back in was that in April? April? Or, yeah. I think it was April. Yeah. Right. It was it was the tank card. And I didn't sense anything in our I mean, we only chatted no. with him 10 minutes or so, but I I wouldn't have known anything was up, but he could have been pretty deep in it at, at that moment, too. So, yeah, it seems uh, it seems he's still working his way through uh, whatever's going on. Yeah. Uh, moving on down the undercard, uh, we had both hoped that the 140-pound fight between Subriel Matias and Shojahan Ergashev would be a barn burner. And it was to an extent for a brief while, but it, it didn't remain as competitive as we'd hoped or last as long as we'd hoped. Ergashev had an excellent first round and a half, but then Matias started cranking up the pressure, steadily increasing his punch output and landing repeatedly as Ergashev struggled to answer. By the end of round five, it was all one-way traffic in Matias's favor, and apparently Ergashev felt the same way, telling his corner between rounds that he had injured his leg and prompting referee Celestino Ruiz to stop the contest, basically between rounds five and six, but officially the bell rang, so the end came at two seconds of round six. With the win, Matias improves to 20-1, and one, all 20 wins by knockout, while Ergashev falls to 23-1 and one with 20 KOs. Kieran, you had been especially excited by this matchup. Were you disappointed in what we got? And how does Matias match up against the best of the junior welterweight division? Yeah, I was disappointed. Not in anything that Subriel Matias did, mm -hmm. but certainly in the fact that Urgashev wilted so swiftly and readily. Yeah. Uh, now, of course, that's incredibly easy for me to say. Um, clearly, Matias is a devastating puncher. Um, and Urgashev, who's himself used to blitzing people, was also probably shocked that he was landing some really good punches that appeared to be having absolutely no effect on him at all and if anything seemed to be just making him stronger right. um even so this is professional prize fighting at the very very highest level for the very biggest stakes on the biggest stage and as a participant you are expected to take yourself to places that normal people don't so yes it was disappointing we didn't get the two-way slugfest we've been hoping for. And on a personal level, I'm especially disappointed he didn't quit around it later as I had picked KO7 in our picks <laughs> contest. It could have uh, gotten very controversial had he quit exactly around later yeah. and they had said that it counted as two seconds into round seven yeah. when in fact it was kind of between round six and uh, seven. Oh, but... No controversy at all. There'd have been no controversy. <laughs> no, of course not. None at all. <laughs> um, I think it was Al uh, who compared Matias to David Benavidez during the broadcast or during of, the, of that particular fight. And I, I must confess, I hadn't made the connection myself before, but yeah, I, I really saw it. It was very Benavidez-esque in the sense, in the way he just flipped a switch, walked Ogarshev down, and started beating him up. Um, really similar, even though they're obviously very you know different styles and different fighters. He's going to be at least competitive, at least competitive with, I think, everyone at 140 pounds. I would pick him comfortably over Ryan Garcia right now, mm -hmm. Subriel Matias, I've got to say. Um, I would make him a slight favorite over Regis Progre. He'd be the underdog for me against Devin Haney just because of Haney's skills, but I, 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 I wouldn't say it was a clear... A, a clear win for Devin Haney. Uh, right. At the very least, I think Matias would, would give him a really, really hard time. When you punch that hard and you appear to have that kind of resilience and that kind of motor and you so absolutely commit so fully to your offense and you have the skills to back it up, 
boy, oh boy, you're going to be tough to beat. I think it took me too long to recognize just how good Matias is. I think I said this before. I think it was like a couple of fights ago where I finally said, God, you know what? I've been underselling this guy. And even having acknowledged that I've been underselling him before, I still each time think, well, he might be a little better than I think he is. Uh, I think he's one of the very best junior welters around right now. Yeah, and then one other uh, sort of comparison that occurred to me in, in this fight, uh, the, the Benavidez one was a good observation by Al, um, to give a, a free plug to our friends uh, Bill Detloff and Tris Dixon. Uh, he has a hint of Matthew Saad Muhammad in him. You know, he'll, he'll let you believe early that he's in danger of losing, but then eh, a couple rounds he'll just take over and, and knock and knock guys out. So it's not a perfect mm. comparison, but there's maybe a hint of that in him. Mm. All right, in the opener. Lamont Roach Jr. knocked down Hector Garcia in the 12th and final round to take Garcia's 130-pound bell. It's a good thing he did score that knockdown, too. It enabled him to squeak a split decision via scores of 113-114, 114-113, and 116-111. Replay showed that the knockdown probably shouldn't have been called, as it was more of a cuffing blow to the back of the head. Um, but either way, the fact that Roach was even in a position to secure the win is not something either of us really predicted. So, Eric, how did Roach send Garcia to his second consecutive defeat? And how much, if at all, does this shake up the upper reaches of the junior lightweight division? Well, before I answer those questions, let's give a shout out to Irony. Uh, the knockdown was not a knockdown. That was a bad decision by the ref. And that bad decision saved us from a bad decision by the judges. I really didn't think this fight was close enough to leave the winner in any doubt. I had it 116-111. The two scores of 114-113, I think those were bad scores. I say this not knowing yet what your score was and whether I'm insulting you by saying that, but uh, I thought your friend Bobby Hoyle saved the day with his 116-111 card. He was the only one watching the same fight I was watching, and that helped get the correct fighter's hand raised. So from my perspective, thank God the ref screwed up and called that a knockdown. Um, this was an interesting fight stylistically. Um, it was, it was a chess match, but it wasn't boring, at least not to me. It was, you know, Garcia wanting to be a counterpuncher and Roach not wanting to leave himself open to easy counters. So it was a lot of single shots, a lot of fainting, some good counters in both directions. But what really stood out was, was Roach, I think, showing real maturity as a boxer. Um, you know, that was what he and his dad said about his first failed title try and then waiting four years for the second shot. They said, you know, he's, he wasn't ready then, they said, but he learned from it and, and he'd be ready now. And I was impressed overall because Hector Garcia is not an easy guy to outbox. Um, the slow-mo replays between rounds frequently revealed Roach's defense to be better than I realized in regular speed. Um, lots of blocks and slips and parries and punches just not landing cleanly. Um, and just when the fight was threatening to get a little dull in rounds eight and nine, they, they picked it up and the last three rounds featured some decent exchanges. And so people came away feeling properly entertained, I would think. Seemed to me like from Garcia's perspective, the reason he lost it seemed like he was maybe expecting a different style from Roach. He didn't quite get what he was preparing, had prepared for, and and he couldn't make up his mind whether to step up the aggression. And, um, you know, toward the end, the fight started slipping away, at least on my card and Bobby Hoyle's. And Roach just stayed patient and mature and I thought really deserved this career-best win, shouldn't have been made to sweat out a split decision. As for the implications for the 130-pound division, 
you know, we were just talking about this last week after, after Navarrete Conceição. Solid division at the top, but who's the man to beat is kind of an open question right now. I don't think it's Roach, but he enters the conversation, at least. It's it's Navarrete, it's Conceição, it's Oshaki Foster, it's Joe Cordina, and then Roach could slot in right after those guys, I would think. So I wouldn't say this result shook up the division, but it added one more name to the conversation, certainly. And I wouldn't say the results of this pay-per-view card shook up our picks competition, but uh, they did make it a tiny bit closer. It was 73-69, my lead, going into this card. We each got one point for the main event, having picked Benavidez, but over the distance. We each got no points for the Roach upset. We each got two points for Matias by KO, uh, neither of us nailing the exact round, although you did come closer, which gets you nothing. Uh, but... Uh, <laughs> On the Charlo fight, as you said, you had him by unanimous decision. I picked him to stop Benavidez Jr., so you got three points to my one. And with one triple header remaining on the schedule, my lead shrinks to 77-75. A fairly standard score at the end of a close eight-rounder. 77-75. With one card remaining. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, Coming down to the wire. Big drama show, Kieran. Big drama show. It's a nail-biter. It is. So it is. Yes. Um, There was one other big fight card this weekend, and it was in Dublin, Ireland, where Katie Taylor avenged the first loss of her professional career by scoring a majority decision win over Chantel Cameron to take Cameron's undisputed junior welterweight championship. That means Taylor joins Claressa Shields as a two-weight undisputed champion. In the process, she improves a record to 23-1 with six knockouts, while Cameron falls to 18-1 with eight KOs. Scores were 95-95 and 98-92 and 96-94 for Taylor. That variation suggesting that there were quite a few close rounds in there. Kieran, how did you score it? And what are your thoughts on the fight and on whether this further enhances Taylor's legacy? I I scored it 96-94 for Katie Taylor. Uh, I I thought the majority of rounds were reasonably clear in favor of one or the other. But yeah, there were... It was only a 10-rounder, and I think there were probably three or four rounds in there that were pretty close, which I, I think goes quite some way to explaining the, the, the diversity there of, of the scorecards. Um, this was a really good prize fight. This was the kind of fight that really highlighted just how incredibly tough you have to be physically and mentally to be a boxer. Uh, from the beginning, Taylor carried the air of someone who was having to dig deep to fend off her younger, bigger, stronger foe. And, and, and it clearly took a tremendous amount of effort because she looked dead on her feet over the last couple of rounds. But despite that, at least on my card, she uh, she dug out the last couple to, to secure the win. Um, you know, Taylor's hand speed was really on point. So was her management of the distance. She threw exactly when Cameron was in range. She didn't reach and leave herself open when the longer Cameron was just outside. When Cameron got a bit too close, she moved in closer and held on tight. It was rough and ugly and bumpy at times. There were a lot of head clashes, too many rabbit punches. Um, Cameron had a nasty gash on her forehead, which which bled everywhere for a couple of rounds from round four onwards. But mm. I felt Cameron blew it. She was clearly the bigger, stronger fighter. But whereas in the first fight, she dominated with her jab, she hardly seemed to use the stick this time around. She just walked yeah. toward Taylor. Um, seemingly expecting to just be able to walk her down and fire away when she got close. Um, I, I did think she had a good spell in rounds six, seven, and eight. I had Taylor up big through five, but I thought I thought Cameron evened it up through eight. 
and she'd begun to impose herself physically and was throwing some beautiful uppercuts in particular, but, but Taylor found that extra gear and pulled away. Uh, there were a couple of points of some controversy. Cameron appeared to have scored a flash knockdown in the first, which the referee ruled was a slip. And at first right. I thought it was a knockdown, but then on second viewing, it looked like Cameron was on Taylor's foot when the punch landed. On third viewing, it seemed that maybe it wasn't. But when you get to that kind of the Pruder film level analysis, um, you know, it, it's hard to say one way or the other that it was a, a terrible error or not. Um, and assuming you gave round one to Cameron, which I assume probably the judges did, because I thought she nicked it anyway. Uh, fundamentally, it didn't make much difference to the decision. Um, and as I mentioned, Taylor was holding a fair bit. And the referee at no stage even offered a warning. Um, but although Cameron was complaining about that a lot, she really could have helped herself out just by using the damn jab and not letting Taylor fall in on her like that. Uh, I thought it was a very good fight in front of a huge and extremely loud Dublin crowd. Mm -hmm. For Taylor to have done this at 37, after so many professional prize fights in a long amateur career, I think it might have been her best performance yet, even mm -hmm. more so than the Amanda Serrano fight, which was hugely impressive on many levels, but you and I both thought she lost. Right. So... I think this was a testament to what a special athlete she is and also just how damn tough she is. I, I thought it was an excellent performance all, all the way around. Yeah, and it certainly was an, an entertaining fight. But I guess there just must be something in Taylor's fighting style that I don't like as much as everyone else from a scoring perspective. Because, yeah, I felt she lost pretty clearly to Amanda Serrano. Um, close, but clear, I thought. And I had this one 95-95. Um, so, you know, zero complaints about Taylor getting her hand raised. 96 94 is certainly fine and i'm not just saying that because that's how you had it i i thought that scorecard was fine but 98 92 i thought was a terrible score i thought it was not reflective of the fight we watched it was however reflective of the commentary crews cheerleading throughout the fight uh this was pure homer broadcasting yeah. which is you know it's fine when i'm watching a phillies game on the local channel uh, you know <laughs> but for a boxing match you're not supposed to have that. You're you're not supposed to have the blow-by-blow -blow man acting at the final bell like he just watched Terrence Crawford school Errol Spence, <laughs> when in fact he just watched a close 10-rounder that right. on neutral turf he should have been uncertain who was about to get their hand raised. Uh, but Taylor did get her hand raised, and that's fine and, and perfectly fair aside from the one terrible scorecard. And it is a major achievement to avenge a loss while giving up size. Um but good God, the commentary was just such a turnoff. It was it was total fanboying throughout rather than calling the fight and, you know, maybe occasionally acknowledging the existence of Chantel Cameron. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, not much in the way of big fights to preview next week, but worthy of note is that Ryan Garcia is making his ring return, his first outing since being stopped by Javante Davis in the, in the summer. Um, he will, well, the spring actually, wasn't it? He will uh, take on Oscar Duarte in Houston atop a card being streamed by the zone. There's not too much other news. One person who won't be fighting next week as scheduled is Adrian Bronner, who withdrew from his bout with somebody called Chris Howard, either because A, he has a hand injury, B, he realized nobody cares, or C, he's Adrian Bronner. Um, you mentioned irony earlier. I'm not sure if this qualifies as irony, but Rodolfo Orozco, who lost to Connor Ben in Ben's comeback fight from a drug suspension, himself failed a post-fight drug test after that contest. Ben, incidentally, has called out welterweight contender Jerron Ennis this week, for whatever that's worth. Jermel Charlo, who was stripped of one of his 154-pound belts the moment the opening bell rang for his subpar outing at 168 pounds against Canelo Alvarez, has surrendered another one of them. 
Rivals flyweight titleists Marlon Esparza and former podcast guest Gabriela Fondora are reportedly very close to agreeing a unification bout. And a big December 23rd card from Saudi Arabia featuring the likes of Anthony Joshua, Deontay Wilder and Dimitri Bivol will air on the zone pay-per-view. Finally, much more serious and much sadder news. Junior welterweight contender Samuel Teja, whom we have seen on Showtime against the likes of Brandon Lee, was shot dead uh, last week, over Thanksgiving weekend, in fact, in Wilmington, Delaware. Teja was born in Liberia, but fled the then war-torn country at age six, eventually settling in Philadelphia. Gosh, his life was one tragedy after another. Um, most of his family, including his brother, two sisters, two nephews, and his niece were killed in a house fire the day after Christmas Day in 2008. Apparently, he would have been there too had he not had an argument with his mother that morning. And he wore 12-26-08 uh, on his trunks thereafter as a reminder. Uh, he scored some notable wins in the ring, including over Oshaki Foster and Kenneth Sims Jr. His career record stood at 19-5-1 with eight stoppages, but all of that is of minimal importance in the grand scheme of things. Another young man shot dead on the streets of America to flee from civil war and endure such unimaginable tragedy, only for your life to end so abruptly, so prematurely, and so violently, certainly does not seem fair. Uh, I'm sorry to drop this in your lap, Eric, but is there anything you'd like to say about Samuel Taya or on a lighter note, perhaps any of the other news items? Yeah, I mean, and Samuel Taya, I mean, God, it's just awful. I mean, what what can you say? The the details are scarce. Uh, we know he was shot. Gun deaths are always senseless and preventable, but we don't know how or why it happened. So, no point speculating. He was a good boxer, but as you said, his career, his boxing ability that that's not the story here. Thirty six is just way too young. So condolences to his family and friends. Um, Hard to transition from that, but uh, there are other news items worthy of comment, I think. Uh, As I noted recently, I won't be around on December 23rd to watch that card or comment on it afterward. But for those who will be watching, word is the pay-per-view is priced at 40 bucks in the U.S., which I approve of. You know, if we are injecting all this blood money into the sport, at least let it subsidize the cost for the fans a little. Um, Fundora Esparza, about as good a women's fight as you could make at flyweight, certainly as marketable a fight as you could make in the U.S. to actually have two female flyweights who've developed name recognition with the hardcore boxing audience. Um, Nothing to say about the latest belt stripping. Who cares? Belts just muddy the waters. All you need to know about 154 pounds is that Charlo remains the lineal champ and Tim Zhu is his clear number one contender. This is reflected in the TBRB rankings. End of story. I uh, can't think of anything clever to say about Ben calling out Boots or Orozco's <laughs> drug test or Broner at this point. And if I'm not going to say something clever or snarky about those subjects, then there's really nothing to say at all. So <laughs> move on. Uh, so lastly, uh, Ryan Garcia and Oscar Duarte. Decent-ish comeback fight for King Rye. I think he took about the right amount of time off, eight months, you know, long enough to reset after suffering his first defeat, not so long that he could get rusty. I heard him in a podcast interview recently, seems in a fine place, doesn't seem to be dwelling on the loss to Tank or anything, sounds motivated. The opponent he's facing, Duarte, the sports books only have him about a plus 300 underdog. I think he should be longer than that. I actually bet Garcia at minus 400, which... I never lay minus 400 on anything, risking four (laughs) pizzas to win one. But this looks like a safe choice of opponent to me. This feels minus a thousand-ish. Yeah, Duarte only has one loss. 
And yes, it was by split decision against a decent fighter in Adrian Estrella, but Estrella had himself lost his previous two fights and would then go on to lose his next two. So this was his only win in a five-fight stretch. And uh, Duarte's 26 wins don't include any notable opponents. Duarte, to my eyes, he's good for a club fighter, but a no-hoper against a world-class talent like Garcia. But still, I'll, I'll be interested to see how Garcia looks especially as it's his first fight with our buddy Derek James. All right. Time now for the fight game. Uh, mm-hmm. And I will warn you in advance, this isn't by any means the biggest or most renowned fight we've ever featured in the fight game, although mm-hmm. aspects of it are pretty familiar. Okay. Um, but because it isn't necessarily the sort of most front-of-the-mind kind of fight, uh, times I've been a teeny bit generous with a couple of the clues, which I think might help you out a little bit here. But... Anyway. Okay, I'm not sure what to make of all this and whether I should be feeling pressure or not, but uh, clearly, I'm sure your intent was not to create pressure with any of that. The, the, intent, is good. the intent is good. The intent is good. As okay. always. As, as it always, always is. Yes. All right, clue number one. This middleweight matchup saw one of the slickest boxers of his generation fall to one of the biggest punchers of any generation. Okay. So middleweight a slick boxer loses to one of the biggest punchers of any generation. Mm-hmm. So we're now talking about a middleweight who is an all-time great puncher. So names that come to mind are guys like Gennady Golovkin, um, Carlos Monzon count as an all-time great puncher. I'm not quite sure. He's certainly an all-time great middleweight. Sugar Ray Robinson was all-time great at everything, but I don't know that you would describe him as for, for his punching prowess, necessarily. Don't know if I should be going way further back. Um, just to get a guess out there, I'm just trying to focus. I'm fo- trying to focus on on Golovkin right now and think if he beat anyone who would qualify as one of the slickest fighters of his generation. And nothing that really fits that description is coming to mind. So. There must be some, like, all-time great puncher who passed through middleweight that I'm not thinking of. It wasn't like... <laughs> because I gave you an Archie Moore one recently, I would assume this is not, like, Archie Moore as a young man at middleweight uh, or something something weird like that. Eh, I can't offer up a guess. I've rambled long enough okay. without getting around to a guess. Let's go to clue two. Okay. For the best part of four rounds, the boxer was having his way battering the puncher relentlessly with his southpaw jab and fast combinations. He seemed on the verge of a stoppage win until one big right hand relieved him of consciousness and sent him to his third career defeat. All right. I think I maybe know exactly what it is. Okay. I think. Uh, And this fight is a little bit in my mind because the winner, if I have the right fight, was recently on, to mention him for the second time on this podcast, on uh, Tris Dixon's podcast. And they talked about this fight, which was a big deal in Britain. So am I correct that this fight is Julian Jackson KO for Harold Graham? You are absolutely correct. Yes, indeed. Good one. And I do wonder whether that would have come to mind based on your second clue or not, had I not had it on my mind in the past week or so listening to uh, Tris interview Julian Jackson. Uh, I'm no way, no way of knowing whether I would have thought of it. None of it quite 
was clicking until you said specifically about the ending that uh, I forget exactly how you phrased it, but uh, you know, at the end of the fourth round, boxer dominating and then got caught. Right. Uh, it, right. It popped into mind. How did uh, I haven't heard the, the podcast yet? How did Julian sound? Does he is he good? Is he doing yeah. all right? He, yeah, he's good. he's great. He sounds like a guy who never took a punch in his life. Oh, that's great. So that's always great. nice when you when you come across an ex boxer who had a lot of fights and and sounds totally fine like that. Does doesn't mean they couldn't catch up with him at some point, but for now he sounds great. Yeah, indeed. All right, here are the rest of the clues that you didn't need. Mm-hmm. Um, clue three was that was par for the course for the winner who won 55 fights in his Hall of Fame career, 49 of which were by stoppage. Indeed, from 1982 to 1992, he went 10 years and 38 fights, 37 of them wins, without needing the judges' scorecards. Mm. Which is just phenomenal to think about, really, my God. Um, Number four, and if you've seen this video at all, you'll instantly know what I was talking about. Video of the knockout frequently makes the rounds, partly because of its spectacular violence, but partly because of the British commentators. The blow-by-blow announcer going, oh, no, as his analyst goes, he's at, he's at. <laughs> yes, there's a bit, bit of a theme there with the uh, the, the British Homer announcers. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Number five, the bomber was on the verge of blitzing his way to a world title that would forever elude him. But it was the hawk who swooped in and carried away the victory. The date for those who don't know, November 24th, 1990, Julian Jackson, KO for Harold Graham at the Torrecabrada Hotel and Casino in Benal Medina in Spain. And they had it in Spain, as I recall, because there were some issues about Jackson's eyesight. I think he had, he hmm. had some operations and he couldn't get licensed in the UK. So they went huh. to Spain. And there was some, and I think that was why there was particular, you know, the doctors were really looking at possibly stopping it right before Jackson uh, produced that knockout punch because his eye was swelling. And I think there were a lot of concerns about his eye at the time. And, well, ultimately, he went on to fight for quite a few years successfully after that, I think. Right. Yeah, yeah. He definitely had a few more uh, good good years and good fights in him. And, uh, yeah, it's a good one. I would say that's, like, certainly well above the line of obscurity to to make for a good fight game kind of fight it's uh maybe they are not you know household name a list plus type of uh fighters even though it's that julian jackson is in the hall of fame but they're not they're not the super big names that come immediately to mind but that fight is famous enough and well remembered enough that uh yeah it's a good one and the other thing about Jimmy Jackson, not only did he win 49 of his 55 fights by knockout, he lost all six of his fights by knockout. Right. And um, maybe that's why he's doing all right. You know, yeah. Just getting sparked early is probably a lot better for you than getting walloped for 10 rounds. So Yeah, you know, having not... Disadvantage. His career having mostly predated when I was covering boxing, I couldn't tell you whether he had any fights where he did take an extended beating of, of any kind. But uh, certainly, yeah, the, if... if if you're a little bit chinny and you're you're getting iced uh, without having to take a prolonged beating, um, yeah, that uh, tends to work out better in the long run. Yeah, indeed. All right. This week's interview continues our look back on 37 years of Showtime boxing, and our guest has been one of the most important and influential parts of that history. He's been executive producer of Showbox since its inception, and on a personal level, He's also been one of the best guests on and supporters of our podcast. He is Senior Vice President for Production at Showtime and our good friend 
Gordon Hall. Gordon, welcome back and thanks for joining us. No, thanks for having me and such a gracious, nice uh, comments. Appreciate it. Always enjoy being with you guys. Yeah, we always enjoy having you on. And uh, so, so full disclosure for our listeners here who are hearing this on Monday after the pay-per-view. This interview is being recorded prior to the fights. Gordon is out in Vegas for what will be the second to last Showtime boxing card. So, you know, simple question to start, uh, although maybe not a simple answer. Uh, where, where are you emotionally and where do your colleagues seem to be emotionally heading into this second to last show, knowing that this particular chapter of your career is just about over? Well, I know I can speak on my on my own about myself. I don't know exactly with all my colleagues, but I do know that, you know, to have gotten the news that, uh, you know, we're closing down at the end of the year, to say that it was disappointing would be an understatement. And I say that primarily because we've had such a great year. Yeah. And we've had uh, four of the biggest pay-per-view fights of the year. We have had uh, you know, the, some of the biggest fights, whether it was, you know, Davis Garcia, Spence Crawford, Canelo, um, you know, Charlo. I mean, we we were profitable. We made a great deal of money for the company on those pay-per-views and then on our regular championship boxing series and then even our showbox series. Our ratings were as good as any year, if not better. And, uh, you know, if this was going to be a proving year for us in showtime boxing well we met all of our marks and so when you get the news like we did that they're shutting it down um you can't take it personally you know it's not because we didn't do a good job it's not because we didn't perform but it's the case where the paramount corporate's objective and what they're looking for in their programming and the need to possibly save money was, um, you know, one of and few of the reasons that uh, the company decided to go in a different direction. You know, I, I, you're involved with all aspects of, of Showtime Boxing production, but as I mentioned in the intro, you're especially associated with Showbox. It is your baby. How particularly upsetting was it for you to have to do a final Showbox show without knowing that it would be the final one and thus not get a an opportunity to give Showbox a proper on-air farewell. Um, yeah, it was disappointing. Hmm. Yeah, but, you know, because, I mean, you know how we all that are on this series feel about it, what we've done, you know, what it's produced, how we've, you know, the, the little show that could. And, hmm. um, you know, so when, when you don't have an opportunity, it, uh, yeah, it, it 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 wasn't great, but yeah, but that's okay. We we've created our legacy. Uh, you know, we have ninety fighters. You know, you know all the stats and the facts, <laughs> and uh, so the fact that uh, we couldn't do it, yeah, it's a shame. But you know, the the other side of it is, uh, you know, our show legacy will live on. Absolutely. Um... All right, that's enough sort of downer, sad topics for for now. We may <laughs> may or may not come back to some, but uh, but I'm curious, uh, Gordon, because I, I don't think we've ever discussed on the podcast before your your origins at Showtime. I don't know uh, exactly uh, when you when exa when exactly you joined Showtime. You were telling us before we started recording. You mentioned you were at NBC prior to this. I don't I don't know your background uh, entirely. So what 
to give us the details well, of, of how and when you joined Showtime. Well, I I was looking at my LinkedIn the other day because I wanted to see if I had material on there if I had to construct a resume. Mm. <laughs> Instead, I've been 33 years and 11 months at Showtime. So I guess I'm going to wow. be 34 years at the end of the year. Uh, my beginning was um, I owe everything to Showtime. Uh, I had been at NBC. I started as a page $4 an hour, worked in sports production management, sports operations. I was a production manager on golf, on football, and and, um, and boxing uh, with Marv Albert and Ferdy Pacheco, NBC Sports World Boxing, Sunday afternoons. And uh, there were some uh, NBCers, former NBCers that were working at Showtime and in uh, MTV Operations Group and uh, who had called me about the opportunity to come over to Showtime and you know, possibly get on the ground floor of bringing all of their productions in-house. This is, you know, 1990. They'd been around for about three or four years, but it was all packaged by an outside production company. Mm. So I was hired, and uh, if you were ever to ask me one of my most memorable moments of uh, my 34 years, it would be the first show, because uh, I came into an office area, had a cubicle, Patty Power, who's now the executive vice president of operations at CBS Sports, who I'd known from NBC, and she was a coordinator there. Between Patty and myself, we booked all the crews. We worked in coordination. David Dinkins was a freelance producer that had done those previous shows with Jim Spence's production unit. And uh, worked with David. We worked on hiring the crew. We worked on getting the mobile units, transmission, working with MTV operations. Uh, Jay Larkin, I had come over to Showtime, and then I, they took me down to 1515 Broadway, the Viacom building, had uh, you know multiple interviews. And the fact that they were hoping that if this fight and this show was successful, that they'd be able to build on it. Uh, we did the show. It was Atlantic City um, Boardwalk Hall in Atlantic City. The show went uh, well, went under a catering tent and Scott Davis, who was then the executive vice president of MTV operations and Richard Keating, who at that time was vice president of operations at Showtime and Jay Larkin and myself and Patty, uh, they popped a bottle of champagne and said, this is the first one, hopefully of yeah. many. So wow. it wasn't a case where anything was guaranteed and then from then on, you know, the rest is history. We grew out the department. We put together policies and procedures. And, uh, you know, I was able to uh, develop a department. And then uh, for the first 10 years, really focus on putting together those shows. And uh, we had a small group. We did not just do shows domestically either. We had a great deal of international shows. And I may not have known all the answers and I never claimed to, but I always said in my common line, maybe hopefully not too common, was that I don't know, but I can find out. And uh, <laughs> so, because I, I had all this knowledge from working at NBC, but I didn't know and I would come into meetings and it would be a boardroom of like 10 people and 
you know, uh, eight of them were vice presidents. And, you know, I don't think it showed it when I was at H, uh, NBC that I, you know, ever went to meetings with all vice presidents and they're all looking at me to, to uh, ask questions and get answers. And, but uh, I knew how to get the answers and uh, knew how to put, knew how to put a team together and, and be a good teammate as well, which is as important as anything when you have a managerial role. So I'm I'm very curious just uh, what was that first card? Uh, I know I, I you said it was one it of was, your most memorable nights. I'm sure you remember who the fighters were. Well, it was a, Evander Holyfield versus Seamus McDonough. Okay. And uh, yeah, so it was uh, yeah, it was great. You know, and I, I you know I always say this, and I'm going to say it, and no one believes me, but I mean, I've loved coming to work every day, and I love Showtime, and I love what we created. So, and there's so many of us, you're asking about my colleagues and what they may feel. All I know is that I'm sure they're damn proud of what they accomplished, whether they were here for five years or 15 or 34 in my case. You know, my brother, David Norman Dinkins Jr., who I've told the story that in the first few years, well, I said, I don't know if we got along, you know, right away. You know, matter of fact, I don't think we got along for the first couple of years because David was a freelancer. I was the staff corporate guy. And, you know, I don't think David uh, ever heard the word no before. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and not that I gave it to him very often, but uh, he, he taught me a great deal. I owe a lot to him. Work ethic, uh, you know, always strive for perfection in every show. It's like, you know, if you remember when you were a kid, you know, as an athlete, you train, you work, you prepare, you're at your best, and then you go into the game and you hope you win. And if you didn't, you learn something from it, and then you go back and you do it again on the next game. And this similar philosophy in sports, which I've always played or enjoyed, you know, that whole philosophy is how I look at going to do a show. I'm never going to do anything but give my best. And if I if I do that at the end, then, you know, it didn't turn out. Well, you know, I'm still going to be able to sleep a little, you know, because I tried my best. I think I speak for a lot of us when I say I paid good money for a photo of a young Gordon Hall in his NBC page uniform, first of all. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, but, but clearly, you know, you, you came into this with from the production side of thing with production experience but i'm curious about what um your relationship was with boxing whether you had grown up as a boxing fan i would put your knowledge of boxing up against anybody else's i feel like there's barely a fighter in the world uh you don't know and i feel that has to come obviously you can learn that on the job but that must i, I assume there must have been some love of the sport or interest in the sport well, that came with my father my father never it really started my father was not a boxing fan it really started in college and it was all around you know the four kings and you know the 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 fact we would sit around whether it was a fraternity house and then after i got out of college my buddies we'd go to see close circuit you know at the racetrack or bet the horses and then they'd have they'd bring in the fights and i was fascinated because of you know with the sport and it was I, I was I was also fascinated because there was a kid in college, Red Steriker, Jim Steriker, Jim Red Steriker, and he fought in the uh, Golden Gloves. And um, 
we went to go see him fight. And then I knew him in like preparing for it and, you know, as fit as a, you know, fit as can be and, you know, really good athlete. I said, I said, I, it would amaze me how great an athlete a boxer is. And nobody really understands it unless you're close to it. I mean, try to go three minute, three minutes for, you know, one round right. for that matter, moving and doing whatever. So I was fascinated by that. And then, you know, when, when I was younger and even when I worked at Showtime, boxing was on ABC, NBC, and CBS. I worked on Sports World. There was CBS Sports Spectacular. There was ABC Wide World of Sports. Uh, so even if you couldn't go to the close circuit to be the biggest, the 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 bigger fights, you you could watch, you know, James Hard Rock Green against John the Beast Mugabe. You could say, you know, Bobby Chappy Chez, whatever, you know, and 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 a lot of these great fighters and and fighters that end up becoming great fighters fought in those series. So I knew that. And then, you know, I, I got the opportunity, you know, 10 years into my tenure at Showtime, you know, Jay Larkin, I don't think he had too more too much to do with this new series. So he signed me as the executive producer on Showbox, The New Generation. And, uh, you know, we didn't know. I mean, you could talk to Steve Farhood, anybody that's in on that show for a long time. I don't think anybody ever thought it would be a long, be around for a long time. I mean, who thinks that a show about unknown fighters in the infancy of their career, you know, is going to gain traction, let alone you're promising you, you can match young kids stuff. That doesn't happen. You know, it never did, you know, when I was growing up. And uh, so I started to study a lot just about young fighters, you know, whether it was the year, you know, year end lists of best prospects in boxing. And I used to try to check it off to try to see, you know, if we could get some of that list on Showbox. And, uh, you know, in the beginning, of course, we had only, you know, Gary Shaw and main events, and then we had Frank Warren. What gave us strength was obviously getting top rank in my relationship with Carl Moretti, Dave Itzkowitz, my relationship with with Golden Boy, then getting the Artie Palulos or the Joe DeGuardias. Joe DeGuardia had Demetrius Andrade, you know, and uh, so it just sort of branched out and to try to convey management that the strength what was going to make this successful is is getting multiple promoters involved because then it gives us a little leverage and with them in order to try them in order to ask them to match their kids tough so one of the things that i've always felt when talking to you and it comes across very clearly i think in that answer is that you like boxers i think you have a real you don't just like the sport i think you like the individuals you have a real affection for the guys that you're booking to be on these shows like you well, want them to do well i i am well i'm a i'm a emotional person the stories you know i always tell the stories we meet we meet these kids in the infancy of their career and you know they're all there because they're talented they're all there because they have some sort of ceiling how high it's not quite yet defined but i can make an example that rosalino morales fought on Showbox, I think earlier this year. He lost, he got knocked out. And um, I, you know, I, I saw his wife and him coming and, you know, you, you, you were, you know, you're sad for that fact, but he, 
you know, after going through fighter meetings, after seeing them in the hotel, because at Showbox, we stay in these smaller hotels, everybody sees people. And, you know, I sent him a little text because he had shoulder surgery or a direct message on Instagram. And I said, you know, I wish you the best and you get your shoulder healed and, you know, you, you, you still have a bright future ahead of yourself. The great thing is, you know, the, you, whether you win or lose, and I've said this multiple times, they're not losses. Oh, yes, they may be recorded that way, but they're learning experiences that allow you to get better if you have that desire to get to the next level. See, all those stories, I mean, we've said this, and I've had multiple conversations with Steve Farhood, who's a mentor of mine and uh, just the most wonderful person and knows about as much about boxing as anybody I've ever met. And, you know, just the stories about fighters and what they strive. And, you know, there's not a lot of rich kids that are fighters, you know, and they, they came from, you know, difficult times, but they really want to do well. And, and we get them when they're untarnished, right? We, we see them when, you know, yes, sir. And they're polite and fuck doesn't come into their, you know, vocabulary yet. And uh, excuse my language, but uh, you know, like, just like we see them in the infancy of their career where they want to do so well. And uh, so that's what uh, makes, uh, you know, Showbox special and, and what makes me enjoy fighters. There's a lot of fighters I don't like, you know, but um, there's a great deal that I do like. And I loved the Showbox series because of the fact that we saw them so early on in their career when it meant so much to them to have that opportunity. So you mentioned the, the fighters. That's, of course the lifeblood of, of this whole thing that, that we do. Are there one or two that, that come to mind first and foremost when you think of Showtime boxing? Uh, well, that's a good question because there's obviously a lot in 34 years. Um, you know, there's always going to be, you know, Mike Tyson because he scared the pants off of people and you saw them, you know, on the walk, ring walk to their, the opponent on the ring walk just lose his confidence before he even stepped into the ring. Um, you know, there there were various fighters that I, you might not think that, you know, were the greatest fighters ever, but, you know, fighters that I sort of enjoyed. And that could be, you know, Jeff Fennick, who I always enjoyed as a fighter. You know, he was, you know, a Johnny Tapia. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you know that, you know, those were some of the fighters Yes, they were all good and they were champions, but they didn't, you know, they were fighters you'd pay to see. Um, the theater of Ricky Hatton fights, and we first had him on Showbox, but right. if you've ever been overseas to do a Ricky Hatton fight during his prime, and as I was cleaning out my office the other day, I had his credential wall. It's probably got, you know, a, I don't know how many credentials, but a lot. <laughs> and I saw... Hatton versus, I think it was Senchenko was his last fight. Yeah. He had come back from being retired, and and uh, we we did that fight over in the uh, MEN arena, and he looked great for three rounds and lost his legs and got stopped. But uh, Ricky Hatton was one of my favorite fighters, and because again, just a guy that you know you were going to get entertained when you saw him fight so 
I think um, I was trying to think. I was writing down some others. I mean, Diego Corrales, mm -hmm. Felix Trinidad. I loved Felix Trinidad. And for a fighter that did not speak English, he was so charismatic. And he mm. was just like had the, the the great looks. Chavez, you can't, you know, you can't take that. I mean, maybe Chavez Haugen wasn't. We did a lot of Chavez fights, but Chavez Haugen was uh, in Azteca Stadium in front of 130,000 people. We spent a week in that venue setting up because at that time, no mobile unit company in the United States would drive their mobile units into Mexico because they didn't think it was safe. So we had to fly all the equipment in, and then we had two empty 53-footers side by side, and we brought... we built crosswalks and we built control rooms in each of them and were there for a week and it was a huge stadium. They had a moat around the stadium with German shepherds and other mm. types of guard wow. dogs with police and because of crowd control and you know but one one of my favorite fighters right now and and I think is just a he's a really good kid and he has a good foundation with his dad is Jerron Ennis. I think Jerron Ennis is is just. I wish we could see him more. He's going to be great for the sport, and he um, he's a, certainly um, on the verge of becoming a big star. I think. Yeah. You know, you mentioned that you know, Ricky Hatton's yet another name who had been on Showbox. What do you think is the enduring legacy of Showbox? Is is it something you can even? sum up in any way other than simply reciting the extraordinary list of champions and contenders who have been on Showbox. Yeah. Um, I just hope that it made it, you know, if it, it goes down as a, as a boxing series that made a difference, that it really helped fighters. Uh, I also like the fact that, you know, though we hear, you know, Oscar De La Hoya now saying he's going to bring promoters together and, and others. And granted, it's a lot easier to do it when you're in, you know, where we are with Showbox. But, you know, I really, uh, you know, prided the fact that, uh, you know, if, if one promoter had a fighter or two that, you know, to certainly try to get maybe the opponents for that fighter with other uh, promoters or let's bring on for the third fight promoter x's fighter you know can you try to make this happen he wants to get on the series we don't have 20 dates a year uh, so there was a time on showbox we did about a 16 you know we used to do about 15 events a year and then unfortunately we've cut it back but i i do say you know we we had you know a lot of heads we had jay larkin then we had ken hirschman and steven espinosa and i can't thank steven espinosa enough for continuing Showbox. He has total control over what we're doing in boxing. And because he is a true boxing person, he believed in what we were doing and he knew what the series was about. And he was going to commit those dollars when he easily could have taken them away from us and put them on championship boxing. Um, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the, the you know, the the big shows and the big fights and the things that make it really fun, you know, whether it's Holyfield, you know, Tyson Holyfield, we had Castillo Corrales, you know, we had all of the Mayweather fights, which everyone was spectacular from, you know, Mayweather Pacquiao and yes, even Mayweather uh, McGregor. 
Right. And, you know, the Vasquez Marquez's, you know, there, there are just so many things that Showtime Boxing will, you know, be known for. And, you know, hopefully that's, you know, similar to HBO, I'm sure when they, you know, this is, this is reminiscent, Kieran, you were with HBO and, uh, you know, this is, you know, reminiscent of, of the end, you know, I'm sure they, they, they're feeling, they felt a lot of the feelings that, that I'm feeling and we're feeling, but, you know, if I had anything to close on this, the biggest memory that I'm going to have of everything that we've done at, at Showtime is the fact that we created an environment of inclusion and cooperation where we were able to get the best people in the business. You know, we hire 75, 90 people a show. And, you know, that's from talent, that's from production, that's from engineering. And, you know, they could go work for anybody else they want. They all have regular clients and they make an effort to come over once to twice a month to work with us. And we have people now that are working for us, their second generations of, you know, the, the people that, you know, we would have hired 34 years ago. And, uh, you know, I've got three kids, you know, three of them, I, I saw some of them today and I'm thinking, God, I remember your dad and, you know, or, uh, and, the, and the fact that we've had so many people that have stayed with us for a really long period of time. Those are things that I'm really proud of. We can get people to do the jobs and it would happen, but we can't get people like we have here and the fact that we have the people that we have here, we do the job, but we do the job better than anybody else. And that's a tribute to the people, just like the team concept. You know, this doesn't happen alone. And it's a good group of people. And, uh, you know, uh, I hope, uh, you know, I hope them all well, and I'm sure they'll do all great. Uh, I'll miss them. But uh there's a lot to be proud of here. Gordon, thanks so much. That was a fantastic answer and a great tribute to, to everyone you work with. You're absolutely one of the best people in the sport and in the business. And if there were more people like you, we'd all be in a much better place. And <laughs> thank you for oh, being so incredibly supportive of our podcast from day one. You oh, really no. have been fantastic and we've really appreciated it. Yeah. And, uh, thank and, you for joining us one and, last time. And, and, and yeah. on that front, you know, we have a saying, which is, I don't know but I can call Gordon Hall and he'll tell me. He'll have the answer. <laughs> well, not, I don't know about exactly. that, but if I don't know, I can find out. Right. <laughs> Thanks so much, Gordon. All right. Thank you for having me. Oh, man. Uh, I think the uh, emotional aspect of the end of Showtime Boxing hit me a little more during that conversation than during yeah. the others we've had the past month or so. Yeah. Um, what a great guy Gordon is. Uh, the boxing world has been very lucky to have him. Hopefully yep. the boxing world will remain lucky and continue to have him once all the PBC uncertainty shakes out. And, um, you know, also once that uncertainty shakes out, I very strongly hope this is not the last time he appears on one of our podcasts. Um, okay, we finish with your next top five assignment. Okay. Sometimes we catch each other off guard with a top five challenge. This will not catch you off guard one bit, Kieran. When I gave you your last top five four episodes ago, I hinted that it was a prelude to this one, which would be coming sometime in December. Uh, this is as obvious and straightforward as it gets for Showtime retrospective flavored lists. Last time I gave you the top five Showbox fights. This time, 
It's the all-time top five greatest Showtime fights, period. And uh, and look, let's just get this one out of the way here. We know what number one is. I think it's yes. possible for some people to do this list and prefer some other fight for whatever personal reasons they may have and not make the obvious number one the number one. But I know for there a no fact friends that... Of mine. Right. <laughs> yeah, you refuse to talk to anyone who would have a different number one, huh? Um, so yeah, I know I know for a fact that the obvious number one is your number one because you were there in person and you consider it the greatest fight you've ever seen. That said, the rest of your countdown intrigues me. I have no idea what you'll rank two through five. And this does give you one last chance to speak a bit about that obvious number one and offer some insightful thoughts on it. So uh, so there it is, all time, top five Showtime fights to kick off December. And uh, of course, we'll be uh, running the risk that something top five worthy happy <laughs> happens at the Armory in Minneapolis on December 16th to shake up the list, but so be it. Um, and the parameters are... Like, I'm thinking, for example, I'm not saying this is going to be on the top five list at all, mm. but I think of something like the bite fight, which is obviously huge, mm -hmm. wasn't great for in-ring action, but, right. but I would it's say so iconic. We're, we're thinking really, like, quality of ring 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 running action. I, th I think so. I think in a, in a close case, say two fights are comparable for action or whatever, and so you want to give the edge to the one that was of greater magnitude that makes sense to factor the magnitude in then, but I wouldn't, I would say something like the bite fight does not qualify as, as one of the gotcha. greatest fights, even if it is certainly one of the most famous fights. Indeed. Well, that's, that's actually great because, um, it was only recently, uh, Chris de Blasio sent out a big sort of, uh, recap of everything that mm. Showtime Boxing has done over the last four decades. So uh, I think it's about 40 pages long. <laughs> so I'll just trawl through that and see what, we, see what we've and, got. There and if in addition to that, you need to use a phone a friend or whatever, you you, you do have that option. So. Indeed. All right. Yes. No, that'll be great. And, uh, and a perfect timing for that particular list. All right. That will do it for this week's edition of Showtime Boxing with Raskin and Mulvaney. Many thanks again to Gordon Hall for joining us. There are just five episodes remaining before we are put out to pasture. So be sure not to miss any of them. Uh, we will be back next week with a preview of Regis Prograde versus Devin Haney and the return of Rabisi Ramirez. Until then, thanks for listening. <laughs>